We're beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. Then he said, Behold, now I'm old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and make savory food such as I love. And you're you're going to see that Isaac at this point is really in love with food. Okay. And, make, and, and make me savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. We're not talking about just like I want to pray for you. We're talking about the blessing that really belonged to Jacob. Now, J- now Rebecca was listening, a.k.a. eavesdropping, when Isaac spoke to Esau's son. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebecca spoke to Jacob, her son, Uh, saying, indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth-skinned man, oil of Olay kind of guy. (laughs) Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to him to be a deceiver to him, because he was a deceiver. Lie, lie, lie. That's what's happening here. And I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. And go get them for me. So ignore what God wants you to do and do what I want you to do. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, stole his clothes, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids, of the goats, on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Some people are like, oh, isn't this a cute story? No, this is not a cute story. They're they're playing dress up. Well, no, that's not what's happening here. So he went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it? How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And he said, because the Lord your God brought it to me. So lots of lies happening here. And now Jacob even invokes God in his deception. By the way, that's a really bad thing to do. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So, you know, flags are going up all over the place. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not, this is really sad, and he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him, didn't even recognize his son. Then he said, are you really my son, Esau? He said, I am. He said, bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come now, 
come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near, he's still not convinced, and he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of the field, which the Lord has blessed. Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let me let my father arise, eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? So Isaac, so, so, oh, oh my gosh. So he, so he said, what's up, fool? That's at the actual Hebrew translation of I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then, then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I blessed him, and, and indeed he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, me, 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 oh my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times, like never, never responsible for his own decisions. Check that out. He took away my birthright. No, that's not what happened, is it? No, he gave it away because he wanted a bowl of soup. Like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree here. And now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I've made him your master, just like God said. Remember, you guys don't have to turn there now, but when they were in the womb, God said to Rebekah that the older would serve the younger. Indeed, I've made him your master, and all his brethren I've given to him as servants. With grain and wine I've sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and you, you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Serious family drama here. Now, now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Like, he, this should already be a sign for him. He's like, no, I'm not doing that again. But arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with them a few days until your brother's fury turns away. That's not how this rolls out. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I 
none of this turns out the way that she's, she's talking about. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? Let's pray together. Father, we know that your word is living and powerful and sharper. God, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And your Bible says in Jeremiah that, God, you cut so that you can heal. Truly, Father, our hearts are deceitful and wicked, and only you know them. And so, God, we pray today that your living word would have full access to our hearts. And, God, that there would be, that there would be the, the cutting away of the flesh. By the work of your Holy Spirit, God, a spiritual awakening in all of our lives to sincerely see the sin that might be lurking within our hearts. God, we want, we want to walk strong with you, and we want to finish well. And so help us, God, to be pointed in the right direction spiritually, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. You know, you've heard this before, and, um, but I'll say it again. Last words leave a lasting impression. And I think that the final words that people speak oftentimes indicate a lot about the way they live their life. So you, you know that when you are coming down to your final days, I mean, if it works like this, you don't always have the opportunity to plan it. Um, but when you're coming down to the final days... And you have, you know, just uh, moments left to live. We're talking about these are the, the final breaths that you're going to breathe. In that moment, man, you are very careful about what you say. You weigh your words very carefully because you know these may be the final words that you ever speak. And, you know, I think that, I think that when we have the opportunity to consider people's final words, you know, just examining them oftentimes gives us a perspective of how they lived their lives, right? I'm not saying this is always the case, but sometimes you can take a look at a person's final words and you can kind of reverse engineer the type of trajectory that their lives were on. Let me give you some examples. P.T. Barnum, you're familiar with him. He made... Uh, a massive fortune off of, you know, the creation of the circus, sideshows. His last words were, what were today's sales? You kind of know what his life was about. N Napoleon uh, cried on his deathbed. He was a man obviously always obsessed with power and position. His final words were, army, exclamation point, head of the army. If you're a baseball fan and you're a Mets fan, probably not many of you here today, but... But just in case, uh, Moberg was a famous Mets baseball player, and his final words were, how did the Mets do today? Jack Daniel, you know, the purveyor of, of whiskey, Jack Daniels. Can you imagine what his final words were? Can you guess? Can you guess? One last drink, please. Right? I mean... <laughs> I'm just saying, like, you, you read that, and it makes a lot of sense, right? It makes a lot of sense. And you can tell a lot about the trajectory, either upwards or downwards, in a person's life based on those final words. I think I, you know, read the final words of those individuals, and I, don't, I really don't think anyone's shocked today. I think it kind of makes sense because, because, you know, we can look from a historical perspective and see what their lives were like. But what happens when a, when a believer is in spiritual decline? I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about a non-believer, a non-Christian, a person who's never experienced the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I'm talking about a person who says that they believe in God and has had real experiences with God, and yet in, in the moment that they're living right now, their life would not be categorized as spiritual progress. It would be categorized in spiritual regress. Because, you know, this is the way the Christian life is. You're, you're, you're either living your spiritual life with, your, with the foot on the pedal accelerating in God's direction, or, or if you take your foot off the pedal for a second, you know it's immediate regression. It's immediate loss of inertia. You know, in this Christian life, and I've said this before, but I don't have a problem saying it again. In this Christian life, it is as important to finish well as it is to begin well. I think, you know, we get, we get really excited about the people who have miraculous and powerful beginnings. And I think that's something to rejoice over. Listen, I'd love to be surrounded by, by brand new believers. But we don't just rejoice over the amazing start. We rejoice over a faithful life and a good ending as well. And so let me ask you this question. If today was your last day, if today was your last day, and I'm not speaking a prophetic word over your life this morning, because, you know, the reality is God knows the number of our days, um, just as he knows the number of hairs on our head, which means that today may be my last day, because there's nothing on top of my head. But we don't live in, we don't live in fear of death, because we know that when we take our last breath on this earth, we will take our first breath, in a sense, in heaven. But, yes, hallelujah. But if today was your last day, would you be today finishing your Christian race well? Would you be able to say, would you be able to say on this day, God, I have run the race the way that you have wanted me to run this race. God, I'm finishing in a way that gives you honor and that gives you praise. God, I'm finishing in a way where my soul is satisfied and I can sincerely and honestly say to you today that you have everything. You have everything in my life. In a sense, my foot is on the, the spiritual gas pedal, and I am pursuing you with everything that I have. Look, I think it's important to think about this. If today was our last day, what would our final words be? Or what would the final word be on the way that we've lived our lives? And sometimes, I, could, I just got to tell you as a teacher, sometimes, you know, we move through a message so quickly that we don't have time to really ponder something like that. And I can say to you, hey, you know what, you guys, think about this later on. But the fact is, a, a good many of us will leave this place and we're already on to the next thing. We're thinking about whatever. You fill the blank in lunch or, you know, the busy week that we have or, you know, complex issues that we're dealing with in our lives. But, but sincerely today, if, if it was the last day, would you be finishing your Christian race in a way where you would be satisfied and God would be pleased. Because it's not just about being in the race, it's about how you're running the race. Sometimes, sometimes I think it's like, you know, we can have this mindset where it's like, well, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, I, I attend church, I'm in the race, but you know, that's, that's, that's not the whole story. It is good to be in the race, but, but really we have to evaluate how we are running. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul meant when he said these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. He said, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, right? So we all are running. 
he says, but only one receives the prize. And so then he exhorts them with this illustration and he says, run in such a way that you may obtain it. Live your life in such a way where you will know by the time you get to the end of your life, you have given God everything that he deserves. You know, I'm not going to get into the, the theological weeds of this, but I do want you to consider this. There is a difference between being saved and living like you're saved. There is a difference between being saved and living like you're saved. This is one of those times as we read this story, it's like, man, you know, it is such a, it is such an honest picture of the dysfunction in a family. And sometimes I read stories like this, I'm like, oh God, you know, thank you for not memorializing for time and eternity the dysfunction in my life. I mean, could you imagine? Like, could you imagine if God's like, hey, guess what? Today, I'm going to take everything that you're thinking right now, and I'm going to put it up on the video screen for everyone to see. <laughs> or I'm going to take everything that you were thinking this week, and, and we're going to post it online. Could you imagine? Like, some of you right now, your hands are sweating. Like, that is an existential concern for you right now. And, and you know, the, the reality is, um, thank God for the honesty of Scripture, Thank God that the word of God does not hide the dysfunction and the drama in the lives of the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the faith that we so often look to. Because I think for, for a lot of us, it's like, oh man, they were human too. They were human too. But listen, their stories are to be learned from. Their stories are to be learned from. And I just want to tell you that Isaac's life is ending in a very sobering way. I mean... Remember, the last time we talked about Isaac, we were learning from him. And I'll talk about those details in just a minute. But I'd set Isaac up for you not that long ago, uh, not that many Sundays ago, as an example to follow because of how he was, was pursuing God. And now, this is a sobering reality, church. Listen to me. It's a sobering reality. Isaac is not following God the same way. He is not following God the same way. His life right now is not in a moment of spiritual progression. It is, in fact, in a moment of spiritual regression. And there are things that we learn from his life. I think they're signs. They're warning signs. They're like warning lights. You know, when you're driving your car and um, you've got warning lights, wh whether it's for uh, fuel or whether it's for oil or whether it's for maybe your, your car is, is powered by a battery, uh, maybe it's for uh, the battery power. And you know, you can get yourself in a place where if you've got a, a lack of oil or you're running out of fuel, the, the warning light goes on. When I was growing up, we called these idiot lights. You know, they're idiot lights because by the time the light goes on, you know, you're already pretty much in, in big trouble. Um, but they're warning signs, they're indicators. Listen, they're indicators that there's a problem. And so I just want can I be can I be straightforward with, with the word of God with you today? There are warning signs that, uh, that I think are presented in Isaac and Rebecca's life that, are, that were indicators, not just for them that there was a problem, but they're indicators for us as well if, in fact, there might be a spiritual issue that we're dealing with. Maybe today, you know, we're really not on the spiritual trajectory or trend that we need to be on. You know, sometimes, and I would say it's more often than not, when you're in that place, you know, you're already blinded. It's already very difficult for you to see. And so let's just talk about a couple of those warning signs that we see in Isaac's life. Today, the first one is this. When 
when you're not headed in the right spiritual direction, there is an obvious spiritual regression that can be marked over time. When you're not headed in the right direction, you know, you can, you can step back from your life, and sometimes, sometimes it takes other people to help you with this. You can step back from your life, and you can just make an honest evaluation, and you can see a contrast that shouldn't exist. About that, I'm just simply saying that you can look at a period or a point of time in your life, and you can see that there was great momentum in your relationship with God, that you were really all in. You were really all in for him. And then, and then you can see over the course of time that something happened. Decisions were made. There was an evident change in your pursuit of God. And maybe it was incremental. L- listen, maybe it was very significant and severe. But, but on the other hand, maybe it wasn't significant and severe. Maybe, maybe it was incremental over the course of time. So you can look at two points in time and you can say, man, I was really lit up and on fire and sincerely walking with God and being obedient there. And then this is not the same. This is not the same. Something happened in between these two points in time. And that happened in Isaac's life. Isaac, the last time we talked about him, he was a man who was meditating on the Lord. And we talked about what it meant to meditate. He was focused on God. He was leaning into God. He was evidently a man of prayer because when his wife was barren, you know, he followed the same example that his mom and dad followed in their time of barrenness, and it was with real authenticity and sincerity. In fact, the Bible says that he pleaded with the Lord. It's not like he just reiterated some prayer that he had learned. Like he was really bearing his heart to God. That's the last time that we talked about Isaac. And now in this chapter, what do we see? We see he's led by the flesh. We see he's easily deceived. We see that he is so disconnected from his kids that he is unfamiliar with the sound of their voice. We see that he's created family drama by his own favoritism. We see that he gloried in Esau's power and prowess. We see that he was willing to secretly deny to to work out this plan where he was secretly denying God's plan of exalting Jacob over Esau. Like this is not, I'm just saying to you, this is not a good place for Isaac to be. Isaac has not been progressing in his relationship with God. The trend has been heading in the other direction. And so by the time you get to the end of his life, like if you just look at your spiritual life, like it is a trajectory, you're on a journey, and at the very end, you're bringing the plane in for a landing, like he is crash landing the plane. He's crash landing the plane. This is not a good situation for him. He is, I I do believe, he's been on the wrong track. And maybe, maybe it started with small steps. Oftentimes, that's the way drifting from God happens. They're small steps. There are small compromises, but it's evident from Isaac's life that these carnal desires were something that he fostered over time to the extent that just as long as he got the meal that he wanted, he was willing to deny the will of God and take the pleasant, the present pleasure, that's really hard to say by the way, the present pleasure and forsake God's future plan. You know, this is true about small compromises. They can become a settled state of mind. 
You know, we look at them and we think, well, it's not that big of a deal. The impact won't be that great. I'll always be able to cut it off. I'll always be able to make the turn. But this is what happened to Isaac. Those small compromises became a settled state of mind or they became a settled lifestyle. They take, they take hold of us. They anchor themselves in our hearts. And we can find ourselves in a place where we have created a prison of our own making. And it's not always with, you know, obvious sin and wickedness. Sometimes the sin in our life is we're going through all the right religious rituals, but we've really drifted from God. You know, all, everything on the outside looks right. We're like the Pharisees. We're all ritualed up. Right? We know the things that we're supposed to be doing and we meticulously do those things, but in the process of our half-hearted approach to God, we have totally drifted from him to the point in the Pharisees' life where they actually are experiencing the Messiah before their very eyes and they don't even recognize him. Sometimes it takes other people to speak truth into our lives. What's, what is so obvious to others, this is what I'm saying, what's so obvious to others, we ourselves can be blinded to. And so when someone loves us enough to come alongside and say, hey, listen, man, I, I love you, and I've, I've been praying about this, and this is really hard for me to say to you, it's, and I am totally uncomfortable right now, and I just got to tell you, I did not want to do this. I do, I do not want to be here. I don't want to be the message, the messenger. <laughs> I, and I think that Nathan was like that. You remember Nathan and David, and, and, and there was a message that Nathan, the prophet, had for David because David had been living in sin, right? He committed sin with Bathsheba. He had Uriah the Hittite murdered, and he swept it under the rug. He fostered the compromise within his heart, and he denied repentance, some scholars believe, for up to a year and he chronicles that in the book of Psalms. He's like, man, I was being eaten apart from the inside. It tore me up. But he was unwilling. He was unwilling to budge. And it took Nathan the prophet to come to him with a word, just an honest word. And ultimately, you know the story based on the illustration that he gave David. And David was willing to recognize and to deal with and judge the sin in someone else's life, right? Because this is the way it is for us. We can see it in everyone else's life. Like, it's easy for us to pick out the compromise and the moral failure in others while at the same time denying our own. And, and there's an insidiousness to the heart in this because I think what happens is by looking at other people's sin and becoming fruit inspectors for everybody else's life, it diverts us from dealing with our own dysfunction and issues, Right? And so we can come off, sometimes the most hyper-spiritual people are the ones who are dealing with the biggest sin issues in their life. And, and you know, it's like, it's like the Pharisees. You know, you're like, oh my gosh, they're so spiritual. Look, they can discern in everyone else's life. Well, sometimes, sometimes those people have severe compromise in their own lives. But, but, but you know, this is what I'm saying. I'm trying to get to a point here. It's taking me a really long time, Okay. <laughs> What I'm saying to you is this, when someone goes through the process of working through the difficulty of even getting to the conversation with you, don't dismiss what they say out of hand. Don't just dismiss it out of hand. You know, and, and don't, don't do that because 
We all should know that our hearts are deceitful and wicked. Like we can, we can blind ourselves to our own sin. And we at least should be in a place, look, maybe you don't see it. Maybe it's not that evident or obvious to you. But we should still be at a place where we say, you know what? You know what, brother? I don't see that, but I know I can deceive myself. So I'm taking it to God in prayer. I'm not dismissing what you're saying out of hand. I'm going to take it to the Lord, and I'm going to let him search my heart because I need him to search my heart. So spiritual decline is something that can be marked over the course of time. Let me just ask you a question. If you look at your life from a spiritual perspective, are you heading in the right direction? The second thing is this. Spiritual decline will leave an undeniable impact on others. Spiritual decline will leave an undeniable impact on others. Um, he, Isaac, was clearly not the spiritual anchor that he was supposed to be. He was not the spiritual anchor that he was supposed to be. He was conceding to the flesh instead of leading in the spirit. He was conceding in the flesh instead of leading in the spirit. Listen, where should this marriage have been? They should have been united together in fulfilling the purpose of God. Like, I just want you to think about how huge the blessing was that God entrusted them with. You know, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, right? you got birthright and blessing all in Genesis chapter 12 given to Abraham. And then Isaac is miraculously born, and this beautiful blessing is handed off. Like, this baton of blessing is handed off to Isaac. And Isaac and Rebekah are in a place where it's almost like there's a disregard for it. It's almost as if there's a disregard for it. Where should they have been? They should have been, God, thank you so much that you've given us this privilege and we've been so blessed. You've done so many miracles in our life. And Father, we want to see this handed off the right way to the next generation. We are united in this purpose. We're gonna walk in your way. We're gonna do things the way that you want them done. We wanna honor you. And Father, we want to see the fullness of your will come to pass but because sin had taken hold within the hearts of these family members, instead of being united around the purpose of God, they were divided. They were divided in their marriage. And that division infected their family. Think about this. There was favoritism. There was conflict. There was anger. There was hatred. There was theft. There was a desire to murder. Isaac is a carnal mess, Rebecca is a manipulator, Esau is a reprobate, and Jacob is a deceiver. How's your family doing today? <laughs> you, you know, years ago, years ago, I used to use a computer that ran Windows. Um, I was liberated from that when I moved to iOS. But I remember, like, when my computer wasn't working, I remember... Uh, the process I'd go through, I'd, I'd do a little defrag, right? I can't tell you the last time I defragged a, a hard drive. And then I'd run McAfee because it was like, you know, maybe some thing's gotten in here. And it always used to really bug me because I'd run McAfee and it'd be like, you know, all of these different things that had crept into my computer, lines of code that were viruses, straight up viruses or Trojans that came through uh, the back door or something like that. And, and it was always like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that these things have actually crept in. And not only have they crept in, but now they've corrupted all of my other programs. So my computer's not functioning the way that it's supposed to be. And so you run the scan and then, you know, you... The software does what the software does. But sin is the same way. Sin is the same way. Look, I could have said to you today, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. But that's an ancient illustration that the majority of you will not get. So I want to say to you, sin is like, 
like a code of virus, right? You let it in the front door. Pretty soon what happens is it permeates everything else. And this is how messed up we are. Can we be honest about this today? Like we think that we can compartmentalize our sin. Like this is how we think. We're like, hey, listen, I got this. I got this. I can put it in this little box and I can play. I can play in my little box. And while I'm playing in my box, you know, I've got control. And it won't, you know, it won't permeate. It won't influence. It won't affect anybody else. You know, I've got this under control. No, you don't. No, you don't. Proverbs says, how can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? Now, we're talking about specifically the sin of lust and adultery. But the illustration is clear. Like, when you start that fire, when you start that fire, it is going to make its way into the rest of your life. And not only is it going to corrupt your intimacy with God, because it will corrupt your intimacy with God. Look, you're a child of God today. You put your trust and faith in him. You belong to him. But the reality is, while all of that is true, when you and I compromise and sin, it affects our communion with our heavenly father. The Bible says it like this. We quench the Holy Spirit. Like we quench the one who's leading and guiding us in truth. We quench the one who intercedes on our behalf when we don't know the words that we ought to be praying to our Heavenly Father. We quench the one who guides us with the wisdom of God when we're dealing with difficult circumstances. We, we get off of God's frequency when we compromise. There's a disconnect. Maybe today there's been a disconnect between you and God and you're like, what's this all about? God, why don't I feel like you're present? Why am I not hearing from your word? And there's this, there's, there's this vertical issue in your relationship with God that you're dealing with. It's possible. I'm not saying this is always the case. But it's possible that compromise and sin in your life has disturbed your intimacy with God. Not only will it affect your relationship with God, it will affect your relationship with other people. There is no way. There's no getting away from this. There's no getting away from this. Sometimes, sometimes you know what we do. There's, there's just dysfunction in our life, and our tendency is just to blame the people around us, right? I mean, it's not as if this didn't happen in the very beginning, you know, with Adam. You know, it's a, it's a woman you gave me, God. It's the woman. It's the woman, right? It's her, and, and you know what? It's kind of you, too. It's the woman you gave me, so I'm not at fault. You guys, you too, you know? You're the ones at fault, and we're professionals at projecting our own failure onto other people and, and not dealing with the issues that really need to be dealt with. I'm not picking on any particular issue today, but, but you know, I, it's so fun. It's not funny. It's really sad. Someone's like, you know what? This didn't work in this marriage relationship, and so I got married, and, you know, it didn't work again, and so... Uh, I got rid of her because, you know, she was no good for me. And so I tried again, and, and, you know, that one really didn't meet my needs. I'm like, hey, can we just stop here? Like, what's the common denominator in this whole picture? Because it's not the hers in your life. It's you. It's you. Like, you are the source of your problems, and you probably need to put on your big boy pants and deal with that. You guys know where I'm going, all right? Spiritual decline left an undeniable impact. The third thing is this. Spiritual decline leads to pragmatism instead of faith. It leads to pragmatism instead of faith. Like, and by that I just simply mean we lose sight of the living God and we start living by our own fleshly wisdom and rules. 
Like we're so disconnected from God and we're not hearing him anymore. So we just start to make decisions that seem right to us. That's a problem. That is a problem. And what is the root of that? Well, the root of that, if you trace it all the way back, it was a disconnect somewhere in your relationship with the Lord. Now, I'll just tell you, like, you know, I've studied this portion of Scripture a lot, and I've read a lot of commentaries, and there are two arguments here for what Rebecca does. There is an argument for what she does. There are people who say, well, you know what, she did the right thing. And they say that she did the right thing uh, by saying that she knew God had chosen Jacob, she knew her husband was spiritually lost and was carnal, she knew that time was of the essence, something that really needed to be done, she knew that Esau was making a play for the blessing and that Isaac was denying God's plan in secret. And she thought clearly that she could just fulfill God's purpose. Maybe even thinking that Esau had been rejected by God and undeserving. So some people say, hey, listen, give her a break. You know, she just, she had to figure it out. It was a tough situation. Others say, no, listen, that, that's, not, that's not right. She lost sight of God's sovereignty and she sought to bring his purposes to pass in her strength. She directed her son to lie and to manipulate. Uh, her behavior was, in, was sin and was in conflict with God's desires. You can tell it was wrong by the relationship issue that Isaac and Esau had afterwards. It's also wrong because she seemed to reinforce a family weakness, a tendency towards lying. And then they would also say, no, she was wrong because, listen, Jacob was estranged from his family and never saw his mother again. Now, I just want you to think about this. She's like, hey, listen, son, not good here. The things that you did were, were, were not right. And so um, this is what you need to do. You need to go to my brother's house, Laban, and you hang out there for a little while. This will settle down. And she instructs him to do this, and she never sees her son again. She never sees her son again. Like, I just want you to think about how dangerous it is when we start relying on our own wisdom trying to figure things out in our own mind. And I, my view on this is nothing justified her actions. Nothing justified her actions, mostly because followers of God don't lie. People who say that they know the Lord do not lie. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his own neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, I know some of you are like, geez, really, pastor? Like, Christians don't lie. I, I just got to tell you, like, over the course of years, it never ceases to amaze me how many people have, how many Christians have no problem with not telling the truth. How many Christians are totally willing to, to shape the truth to get what they want done done? You know, how many Christians are willing to misrepresent other people so that they can look good or that their cause might be justified? But the Bible says in Proverbs 12, because really all that matters is what God thinks about lying. The Bible says lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. Now, you might be thinking today, and I'm going to come up with your arguments against this for you so you, you don't have to really do the thinking, okay? But you might be thinking, well, what about Rahab? What about that situation where Rahab, you know, she concealed 
the spies and she lied about them and ultimately we know that Jericho fell. But if you really are careful in your study of scripture, what you'll recognize in the book of Hebrews, when the Bible talks about Rahab or in other portions of scripture, it never sanctions her lie. It just commends her for receiving and sending the spies. God doesn't want your pragmatism. He wants your faith. Do the right thing and in so doing prove that you trust God. Look, even if, even if, you can look at Rebecca and you could be kind of moved to sympathy. You could be thinking, man, listen, she was in a hard spot. The clock was ticking, right? I mean, God's will wasn't going to come to pass. It doesn't seem like God was even engaged or, or God even cared. And I think, man, what miracle did that family miss? What miracle did that family miss because they chose to operate in the flesh instead of operating in the spirit? What if she would have just waited? I mean, God made the decree when the kids were in the womb. God's will was going to come to pass. What if she would have just waited? You know, what if Isaac would have been leading the way that he should have led? What miracle would they have seen God do? And I think, man, how many miracles are we missing in our lives because we've, chose our, we've chosen our own pragmatism instead of trusting God by faith. You know, the pressure is on. A decision needs to be made. And so what do we do? We choose not to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean on him with all of our own understanding. But, but, but we deny that. We turn away from that. And we look to ourselves. You know, it's right about now that you're like, well, wait a minute, pastor. What about the Bible verse that says, even if we are faithless, he's faithful. And, and I say to you, you know, that is a classic example of lifting a Bible verse out of its context. Kind of like when people say God won't give you any more than you can handle. Have you, have you heard that said before? You guys know that's nowhere in the Bible? Just, just so you know, next time you say that, understand you're saying something that not only is not in the Bible, it's not even biblical. You say, well, what about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13? Well, thank you, because that is the verse that is draw, drawn from. And the Bible says that God won't tempt us beyond what we're able to withstand. But in the temptation, he'll always provide a way out. The Bible is not talking about difficulty in life that we can't overcome. The Bible is talking about being tempted with sin. God, in other words, God's never going to put you in a place where you have no other option but to do the wrong thing. God will never do that. And in addition to that, I don't know about you, but God always has me in places where, like, I've got more in my life than I can handle. That's my life. You know, if that wasn't the case, you would never experience miracle. God would never have to step in and do something for you because you could handle it yourself. And that is not the Christian life, all right? So... So, what does this verse mean when the Bible says, even if we are faithless, he's faithful? Well, I put it up on the screen for you today. And 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, remember with me historically, these are some of the very last words that the Apostle Paul will ever write or even say. And this is how the whole verse goes. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Somebody say amen to that today. That's, that's really good news, okay? If we endure, we shall also reign with him. So if we press on, if we don't quit, if we don't give up, if we keep our foot on the spiritual gas pedal, and then he goes on to say, if we deny him, he will also deny us. No, no one quotes that, by the way, Right? Because it feels really inconvenient. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. 
So what Paul is saying here is, is this. You have two options in life. You can press on in your relationship with God or you can move in the other direction. If you press on in your relationship with God, if you endure, you will reign with him. If you abandon the gospel, then there's no promise of salvation for you because the promises of God only come through faith in the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you deny that, there is no hope of life everlasting. You say, well, wait a minute. What does that mean about God? This is why Paul says this. If we are faithless, he's, he remains faithful. It is never God's fault, right? When there's spiritual failure, it is never God's fault. God is always faithful. God is always true to his word. God will always come through. Like we can never blame our spiritual failure on God because he is the unchanging one. This, this is why Paul says in Colossians 1.21, you guys are going to love these verses. He says, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Isn't that good? So, so Paul, let me, look, thanks for coming to church today. Um, you know, you're not here. You're not here to get your ego stroked. And you're not here to get your felt needs met. You came here to hear the truth. And so I'm going to share the truth with you, all right? You were once alienated from God. You couldn't have been further away. And you were at war with God in your mind because of your wicked works. And God took you from that otherwise hopeless situation. Look, you didn't work your way out of it. It's not because you're such a stellar person. It's not because you get yourself all prettied up for church. And you come up every other week, right, if pastor's lucky. Right? No, no, what happened is God reconciled, God pulled you out of that place, and God, God mended what was broken through your faith in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You trusted in Christ, and you were born again. It was the work of Jesus on the cross in your place that has rescued you and saved you, and now has enabled you to be presented holy before God, blameless and above reproach in his sight. Like, that's awesome, all right? You, you can't give him praise for that. He goes on to say, listen, I'm not done. He goes on to say, if indeed you continue in the faith, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, not moved away, not thrown off course, not making slight compromises, not turning back to the things of this world, not looking back to Egypt and saying, you know, I had it so good back then. Paul gives an if-then statement. Right, All of that is true for you and will be true all the way through if you don't move away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, spiritual decline is evident. Like the warning signs in our lives are all there. And the great, amazing, awesome thing with God is if we're moving in the wrong direction, we can always turn our hearts back to him. Spiritual regress, final point today. Thank you for being Patient, and I pray God gets our hearts today in this. Spiritual regress can turn into progress when we repent. Pastor, you just used the word repent on Sunday morning. That's right. That's because that's the kind of church this is. Spiritual regress can turn into progress when we repent. And listen, Isaac knew that God called him out. Isaac got busted. And the Bible is clear that Isaac turned back towards the Lord. The last word 
On Isaac's life, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. And later we're going to see that the blessing of Isaac falls in sincerity upon his son. There was a repentance. He was moving in the wrong direction. There was an awakening because God interrupted him. Thank you, God, for the divine interruptions that you bring into our lives, right? God interrupted him. God interrupted, God's like, hey, enough is enough, son. You, you, you are on the wrong path, and I have a jealous love for you. And so I'm going to draw a line in the sand. I'm not going to force you to go the right way because you still need to make the choice yourself. You know, we were in Arizona, Rachel and I were a couple of days ago, and, and I had my GPS, I was using GPS to get somewhere, and uh, I made the wrong turn, and so my GPS rerouted me, and what it did was it showed me the first U-turn to make to get myself back on track. It didn't show me the second one or the third one or the fourth one. My, G, my you know, Siri wasn't like, hey, listen, you're going in the wrong direction, but, you know, you just keep going this way, and down the road you can turn around. No, it was like, no, you need to, to get back on track, you need to make the change now. You need to take the first opportunity to turn yourself around. And listen, that's what repentance is. That's what real repentance is. When the Spirit of God speaks to us, his expectation, his righteous expectation, particularly for sons and daughters of God, is that we are going to hear and heed the voice of God and align ourselves with him. Right? Because we know that he loves us. And because the the cross is worthy of that. It's worthy of us saying, God, you have all of my life. And I don't want to hold back. I don't want to hold on to. Listen, maybe today for you, maybe today for you, there's sin in your life. And it is big sin. It is wickedness. It's straight up. Straight up. You know, if it was put on the screen, you'd be like so embarrassed of what, of what God knows is happening. And today, you know, there's, there's a call in our lives to turn away from that, to repent. Maybe today for you, it's not some big thing, but you've got this little idol that you've carried along with you in your Christian journey, this little thing that you've made space for, right? It's been this compromise that you've held on along the way, and you're like, well, it's so small, it doesn't really matter. It matters to the heart of God. It matters to the heart of God. Gideon was going to do this great thing for God, and what he had to do before this great miracle was going to happen was he had to go to his father's house and tear down the idols and tear down the altars, and that's exactly what he did. He tore down the altars, he tore down the idols, and he made a sacrifice to God. And God has a word God has a word for us today. God has a word for you and for me today, that he has a jealous love. You know, that we don't want to be in a place where he stands on the outside like he did with the church of Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. I'm on the outside and I should be on the inside. And, and, and he says to that church, as many as I love, I rebuke. Therefore, be zealous, like take the first turn that you possibly can and come home to me. This is the word of the Lord to us today. Hear the words of the prophet. He said this, Ezekiel did, repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniqui iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you've committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. 
For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. Father, thank you for your word today, God, and we receive it. God, we receive it. Father, we pray that you would be that all-consuming fire within our hearts. We pray that you would be like that rushing mighty wind blowing through the temple of our soul. We pray, God, that your Holy Spirit even now would, would scan us and reveal to us any idol, God, any compromise, any waywardness, God, any, in any way that we've been moved or are moving away from you. Oh God, we pray, we pray now that you would bring that sweet and sometimes painful conviction of your Holy Spirit and that we would not wait or hesitate to respond to you in repentance and obedience and faith. And today, as we're closing in prayer, we're going to do something just a little different today. And as the Spirit of God has spoken to all of us, this word is for all of us. Today, we want to encourage you if maybe you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. The truth is this, you, you've never been forgiven of your sins. You've never turned away from from the unrighteousness in your life and turn to faith in Jesus and chosen to follow him. Today is your day. The opportunity to turn to God has been laid out before you like a gift. And God is calling you to come to him because he is the lover of your soul. Today we want to invite you to respond to the message of God's love in the giving of his only begotten son. Today you can be born again. And today you can have your broken relationship with God mended as you are reconciled to the Father through faith. And today for us as Christians, maybe the truth is there are, there are things in our lives that we need to repent of. We need a moment of honesty with God. And you know, we need to be bold about this. We need to be courageous about this. We, we need to, some of us need to take real steps today in turning our back on sin. Because listen, when we sin, we turn our back on God. And we don't, I know that you don't want that and I don't want that. But today there are some things, ways we've been living that we need to turn our back to and never turn around to look at them again. And so this morning, we're gonna invite, as God has, has spoken to your heart, we're going to invite you to come forward today to take a courageous step and to really let God let him work the healing work the renewing work let him demonstrate his mercies and his grace in your life let him do the great thing that he's desired to do let him get you back on track you can't you can't do that yourself it's going to take the power of God. And so this morning, as God has spoken to you, maybe for those of you who aren't saved and you want to put your faith in Christ, stand up right now and come forward. For those of you who are Christians and God is tugging on your heart right now and you, you need those altars 
in your life to be torn down so he has all of you. I want to encourage you to come down as well so I can lead you in prayer. I want to lead you guys in prayer today. You might be praying with a, a follow-up leader. Just ask you to stop that prayer and I want you to should pray with me. Make this your prayer to God. He loves you so much and you can pray with anticipation. You can pray believing. Yeah, sorry. Hey, let's just pause for one second. Okay, I want to lead you guys in prayer, all right? You can pray believing and uh, when, you, when you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, God will not let you down. And so let's, let's pray today and let's believe God for the miracle. You can repeat this prayer out loud after me. God, today, I give you my life. And Father, I come in faith, repenting of my sin and trusting in Jesus. And through him, I receive your forgiveness and your mercy and your cleansing and you're empowering, and this new work that you will do. I want to live now for your glory with my foot on the pedal until I see you face to face. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.